0: Sheila. And
1: I'm Sarah. And
0: welcome to Season 2 of Pushing Pediatrics, an educational podcast for physical therapists created to help those studying for the Pediatric Certified Specialist Exam and anyone else interested in learning more about pediatric physical therapy.
1: Last year, our episodes were played over 10,000 times to help listeners like you crush the PCS exam, and they did.
0: This year, you can expect more content and even more review to help you feel confident on test day. Let's not waste any more time. Time to study.
1: Listener note, this podcast was created as an adjunct for those studying for the PCS exam. By no means do we guarantee that one will pass the exam solely by listening to this podcast. We encourage all those studying for the exam to put the appropriate time and effort into their studying using resources recommended by the ABPTS and the APTA. It is not allowed to discuss test content and we will not accept any questions related to test content. While we will do our best to provide the most accurate information, If you feel as though we have stated something that is incorrect, please contact us via Instagram or Facebook at PushingPediatrics or send us an email at PushingPediatrics at gmail.com.
0: Hey listeners, we have an ask of you. Between reading and rereading resources, reaching out to content experts, and reviewing our material, this podcast takes time, effort, and resources to share it with you every week.
1: We are humbled and grateful for the listener and affiliate interest over the past several months, and the scores of messages received letting us know that this podcast has incrementally improved their test prep has been inspiring. Special thanks to the community for engaging and interacting with the show.
0: We want to keep the podcast focused on content that informs, prepares, and is mindful of your time. One way to accomplish this is direct listener support.
1: We've set up a link where you can quickly and easily support the show. If pushing pediatrics is a part of your day or week and you love what we're doing, please visit the link in any of our episode guides and support us any way you can today.
0: Welcome back. This week, our cases don't necessarily go along with the material as we talk to you about research in Tuesday's episode. Our first case this week is on cerebral hemispherectomy. This is case number three in the Pediatric Case Files book. So let's go. A five-month-old baby girl was admitted to the hospital due to infantile spasms. Seizures presented in clusters with a total of 30 to 40 seizures per day. Her medical history showed unresponsiveness to various anti-epileptic drugs, which have been trialed since she was two months old. She has had multiple previous hospital admissions. Over time, her seizures have progressed to longer durations with forceful right arm and leg movements. An EEG confirmed epileptic activity arising from the left hemisphere. MRI and PET scans showed areas of cortical dysplasia in the left parietal occipital region with abnormalities extending towards the frontal region. Neurological examination documented a right homonymous hemianopsia. A neurosurgeon recommended surgery for identification and removal of the epileptogenic region. She underwent a left hemicranionomy and left cerebral functional hemispherectomy. The surgery was approximately 10 hours long and was performed without complications or excessive blood loss. Although the baby was awake and interactive the night after surgery, her interaction decreased slightly after two days. The parents were assured that this was expected due to post-surgical brain swelling. A complication after surgery was chemical meningitis. However, her fever subsided two weeks after surgery. At this time, the baby's intracranial pressure was less than 16 millimeters of mercury and the ventricle catheter was removed. Results of the CT scan confirmed a ventriculoperitoneal shunt was not required. When the baby was able to adequately drink and eat three weeks after surgery, she was discharged from the hospital to home with her parents. Discharge instructions included scar management and precautions, as well as medical and rehabilitation follow-up. One month after surgery, early intervention was set up to include in-home physical and occupational therapy. A pediatric physical therapist assessed the infant in her home with her mother present.
1: Keep in mind with this case, the age of the patient five months old. We've talked about it in previous episodes to make sure you're taking into account a child's age when reading a case, because then you'll be able to apply it appropriately to the questions from the case. Let's start by going over the physical therapy plan of care and goals. You will want to prevent and minimize loss of range of motion, strength, and aerobic functional capacity, maximize physical function and safety, minimize secondary impairments, and optimize health-related quality of life.
0: Some interventions include patient family education and positioning and range of motion exercises to prevent contractures at the neck, spine, and extremities. Preventing contractures is super important as the child may be at risk for developing torticollis, elbow and hip flexion contractures, and ankle plantar flexion contractures. Think to yourself, what are some positions that you could put the child in to minimize these contractures? What are things that are appropriate for their age? Other interventions include using equipment to increase mobility and or promote bone growth and equal weight bearing, such as a standing frame, and graded exercises to optimize muscle strength with a focus on progression through the developmental milestones. Again, think about it. At five to six months old, what are some things that the child should be working on at this age? sitting, prone on elbows, rolling, quarter bed. Additional interventions include development and facilitation of a home exercise program, therapeutic exercises to improve range of motion, coordination, and strength, gait training, such as body weight supported treadmill training, balance training, and bilateral hand and arm exercises.
1: Some precautions during physical therapy include delayed hydrocephalus that can develop at any time post-surgery, shunt malfunction or need for revision, and increased seizure activity. Remember, we chatted with you during our episode on spina bifida about the signs and symptoms for shunt malfunction. Any gradual change, including a change in school performance for an older child, may indicate a need for revision. For this child, think to yourself about some things that maybe could change if the shunt was beginning to malfunction, such as a change in personality or irritability or something like that. Seizures can also reoccur due to delayed hydrocephalus and may indicate a need for additional surgery and or a change in medication management. It's important for us as physical therapists to be aware of the changes that may occur.
0: Some complications that may interfere with physical therapy include global delays in cognition, language, fine motor, gross motor, social, emotional, and adaptive development. These impairments may interfere with physical therapy participation. Functional skills may be impacted by visual and or perceptual neglect, persistent hemiparesis with more distal extremity involvement may occur, and the child may present with possible pain and sensory integration dysfunction.
1: I've actually worked with two children with uh, a cerebral hemispherectomy, one who is significantly more impaired than the other. One student is ambulatory and the other student is dependent on a tilt and space wheelchair for mobility. Every child can present very differently, so it's important to tailor your interventions and treatment ideas to that patient specifically. That being said, make sure you pay attention to what may be important or pertinent for the patient in the case study. And
0: this is probably a really great time to plug. I'm not sure if we've talked about this yet, but a really great foundational understanding of normal development, especially in those first five years, but even more so in those first 12 months. What is a typical child supposed to be doing at two, three, four, five, six months? And then having that as a baseline, because maybe it's not a typical child, but maybe it is a child that is presenting like a typical two-month-old or three-month-old, even if they're actually eight months. The Interventions are still going to be tailored similar to that of a two to three month old, so you might need to be able to figure out what an appropriate intervention would be for that child who is presenting in that age range. So let's go over some evidence-based clinical recommendations for this case. Functional outcomes for children's status post-cerebral hemispherectomy may be related to the etiology and or age at the time of the surgery. More functional improvements are noted in children with acquired etiologies and younger at the time of their surgery. This has grade B evidence. The Bailey is a valid and reliable instrument to identify developmental gross motor, fine motor, and cognitive delays in children ages one to forty-two months and may be appropriate in assessing children with cerebral hemisphere ectomy. This has grade C evidence. Constraint-induced movement therapy improves motor function and increases the use of the hemipyretic extremity in children with cerebral hemispherectomy. This has grade C evidence.
1: One of the students that I worked with previously has actually been going through CIMT right now. I no longer work with the student directly, but I'm excited to see how his outcomes compare to his level of function beforehand and if he begins to use his impaired side more frequently. We have considered this for the other student I work with as well, but due to his other limitations and functional status, it may not be as appropriate for him. This is what we're talking about tiering your interventions directly to that specific patient or child.
0: Let's move on to case number four hemipolymicrogeria, bracing for gait. This is case number four from the case files book. A 14-month-old toddler diagnosed with right unilateral focal polymicrogyria affecting her right frontal, temporal, and parietal cortices is being seen for her weekly visit with a physical therapist through Part C early intervention. The patient has been seen regularly by the physical therapist since she was nine months old. Occupational therapy visits were added at one year of age. Initially, she presented with left hemiparesis, affecting her upper extremity more than lower extremity, and she was not yet sitting, crawling, or bearing weight. Throughout six months of services, the child learned to sit, crawl, pull to stand, cruise, and take steps with a push toy. However, her therapist and her family have ongoing concerns about the impact of increased tone in her left arm and leg and how this is impairing her function. Her team of therapists, in consultation with the orthopedic surgeon, has initiated constraint-induced therapy for her arm. They are also considering the benefits of bracing for her left leg. While her skills are rapidly approaching age-appropriate levels, the physical therapist is concerned about the quality of her movement as well as the impact of increased tone on her bones, joints, and posture.
1: Polymicrogyria is defined as a condition related to the formation of gyri or folds in the brain before birth. It is diagnosed when there are too many gyri and the gyri are smaller than normal. Limitations depend on the area of the brain that is affected, which makes sense, right? Some signs and symptoms that the child may present with include developmental delay, hypertonicity or hypotonicity, Seizures, and cognitive issues. The child in this case specifically presents with hemiplegia secondary to unilateral focal polymicrogeria, so the case focuses on bracing for gait.
0: Choosing the right orthotic is dependent on the child. You need to ensure that the child has enough strength above the joint that is being braced in order for them to be functional in the orthotic. For example, A child with good quad strength could be appropriate for an AFO because they can control the quad independently. If they have less than good quad strength, they may be appropriate for an HKAFO. One thing may work earlier in life, and they may need to be adjusted later on.
1: Let's go over some general physical therapy plans of care and goals. For this child, it would be appropriate to focus on maintaining range of motion and activity in the hemiparetic side to obtain typical or near-typical developmental milestones. It is also appropriate to address movement patterns to ensure that the child is using the most energy-efficient methods possible. You also want to do what you can to prevent musculoskeletal complications.
0: Some interventions include weight-bearing and activation of antagonist muscles to reduce tone, movement through typical progression, and activation of hemipyretic side with activities that encourage participation in typical childhood activities, constraint-induced movement therapy, electrical stimulation, and functional movement and dynamic bracing to allow functional movement without allowing movement into tonal patterns, such as excessive plantar flexion. Remember, it could also be appropriate for the child to use one orthotic in the community or school and at home and then use a different orthotic during physical therapy. Or they can even go without an orthotic during sessions if it is appropriate to focus on strengthening weak muscles and improving movement patterns.
1: Some precautions to be aware of during physical therapy include adverse drug reactions of medications to control tone, Some include decreased alertness and excessive weakness. These should be monitored. Forcing movement against significant tone can cause structural problems, so please be aware of this. Some complications that may interfere with physical therapy include increased tone in the hemipyretic side during quick movements, long-term use of CIMT could interfere with bilateral limb use, and significant tone reduction could negatively affect movement, especially if the child was relying on the tone for stability.
0: Let's go over some evidence-based clinical recommendations. The modified Ashworth scale and the Tardieu scales appear to have face validity for the use of children with polymicrogeria that present with hemiparesis and increased tone. This is grade C evidence. In children with cerebral palsy, GMFCS levels 1 through 3, botulism toxin injections followed by physical therapy temporarily reduce spasticity so that antagonist muscles can be strengthened and new motor plans can be learned. This is grade A evidence. Bracing to reduce tone and normalize gait parameters is an effective intervention in children with lower extremity spasticity, but the specific bracing type needs to be individualized to the child. This is grade A
1: evidence. For cases like this, focus on the concepts that it talks about. The big picture, bracing for gait, not necessarily the exact diagnosis you may get a question on choosing the most appropriate orthotic for gait. So determining what would be appropriate is important to understand. Thank you all so much for listening to Pushing Pediatrics. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Pushing Pediatrics. We would love to hear from you. So send us questions, suggestions, things you want to hear more of, and things you'd maybe want to hear less of. We will talk to you guys next time.
0: And remember, you totally got it.